Yeah, sort of, in some ways, it's almost like uh, if you were to face off with Vic Viper and then you had another Vic Viper that had a mustache, you know, <laughs> evil, evil, evil Vic Viper. <laughs> sort of along the same line. It's, it's basically a palette swap is what it is of, of your ship. Shoot the core, cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly Shmup-themed podcast that tries to respect your time, so we don't drag in and on and on and on. I'm Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups, and with me I have... Metal Fro, also known as Game Boy Guru. We'd like to start up by giving thanks and give thanks to everyone at RF Generation with the community playthrough of the month and the playcast, we really appreciate the feedback that is given and the thoughts as people play with the Shmup Club game of the month and the great database and the additions to database and being able to catalog your games and know what the heck you're buying so you don't end up with 15 copies of winner games again. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> great for that. And we'd love for anybody who wishes to join us. I'd also like to give a big thanks to Neo Delfino Productions. They had done a limited run of Paradirus Zero, and they oversold on it. But the owner sent me his last copy of the game, and I've really been enjoying it. So thank you very much to that, and I'm really excited for the next venture, which I believe is Gunsmith Cat Girl. I'm looking forward to that. It's a Almost like a roguelite, but with mechs. That is a Famicom homebrew. Hmm. If you haven't heard of Heredius Zero, you can still buy the Famicom version, which is pretty cool. And there's also a sequel, which is on the Famicom, and it uses a special chip to, to produce MP3 for the soundtrack, or uses MP3s for the soundtrack for the uh Famicom uses that enhancement audio, so it's really neat and interesting. Check it out if you haven't. It's a little bit simpler in the terms of their being based on the MSX game Heradrius, but it's still definitely a fun shmup to play for the NES or Famicom. Hmm, pretty cool. All right, well, uh, if you would like to connect with us, um, make sure to follow us on Twitter at ShootCoreCast. You can follow me directly at GameBoyGuru. Uh, join rfgeneration.com and uh, please come join us in a Shmup Club playthrough. You can find the podcast via Linktree, uh, linktr.ee slash shootthecorecast, so you can get links to all the different feeds and uh, all the places you can find us online. And uh, speaking of which, if you would, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your preferred platform. Uh, we do watch for those and uh we have had a couple in the past that i've re i've read on on the podcast so if you do a review we'll probably read it yeah don't forget uh, hash brown shoot the corecast 
Yes, hash brown. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, at, on the front page of rfgeneration.com, there's also a link to our Discord channel. And we have a dedicated uh, shoot the core cast topic there that you can come and and uh, participate there as well. Talk about the game of the month, post your high score uh, screenshots or photos, talk about shmups in general, etc. Uh, and then, of course, I'm always streaming the shmup club game of the month, so you can check me out Twitch.tv/GuruGameBoy to uh, come join in the fun and watch the game of the month there. Definitely all fun to do that. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the game of the month, uh, what we played for April was Veritra Complete Edition uh, on PC. So what makes it complete about Veritra? What makes it the complete edition? I think it's because it's an it's a an expansion of the original game that was on mobile, which we will get into here momentarily. Uh, before we do that, uh, we did have a question of the month that I put out on Twitter, and we got a few responses to that. Uh, so, Veritra has a story based on elements of Hinduism. What subject matter do you think would be interesting to explore in the context of shooting games? So our first response came from Pony Tatsujin, who says, I know this has been done before with Philios, loosely, but would definitely like to see more Greek-slash-Roman mythology being used. And I mean strictly Greco-Roman mythos. And yeah, I mean, there's been elements of that in games like Philios, or Legendary Wings, or one could even argue Gynog, or Wings of War. Um, but I don't know that there's been anything that has been super focused or or faithful to Greco-Roman mythology. So I would agree that that's uh, I was big into Greek mythology uh, growing up, and so that would be a, a cool subject to uh, to kind of dive more into. All right, our next one comes from at B Reality. I don't know if it's been done before, but a time traveling pilot sounds dope. Imagine start off in a biplane like 1943 or something. Each level jumps you forward in time to a newly upgraded ship for the time period, eventually reaching off into some future in space. In a second tweet, or perhaps game would follow lineage of ace pilots in their continual fight against an evil entity through the generations. <clears throat> Picture the Belmonts of Castlevania, where it's a family of the best pilots that struggle to destroy an alien race each generation. Now, I think that the first game, I would say Time Pilot, already comes close to his first idea. That'd be a neat one to try later on. Yeah, I... But, uh, sorry, so, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say, but the second idea I really like. I think that <clears throat> that would sort of be neat to make. Uh, people really seem to love Rogue Legacy, and it takes that takes that and makes it into a, an action game. In some ways, a Metroidvania. I would love to see the uh, that done in a STG. I think that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, the 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 um, the lineage of Guy Kazama or something like that. <laughs> yeah. When when uh, when B dot uh, tweeted the first one, I sent him back a message saying, 
the closest things I can think of are Time Pilot, and then, of course, Gekun and Don, which kind of sees you time-traveling throughout different periods. But then he responded with the second tweet, and as soon as I read that, I tweeted it back and said, that idea is money. Somebody needs to get on that right away, because that is a fantastic idea. Uh, next, we have Chris B. Chips, who says, Has the Star Wars series ever done an official shmup game? Because I was thinking about how well that had worked the other day. And of course, I, tw I tweeted back to him and said that, as far as I know, the closest thing that has been done is the Empire Strikes Back game on the 2600, which is sort of a Defender-like game. But there really hasn't been an official Star Wars shmup, to my knowledge. Yeah, the closest you're going to get are the 2600 games, right? You're, maybe you could say sort of the arcade game right? in some ways. And then you have the Empire Strikes Back, and then you have the Return of the Jedi, which... Uh, you know, it's got that giant dance floor that you have to shoot a hole through in order to destroy the... It's almost like Yar's Revenge in some ways. Right. <laughs> that. But the 2600, is good. those tiles are probably the closest that you'd ever come with. <clears throat> Aside from that, the some sequences you'd get in um, the Super Star Wars trilogy and some stuff you get from the Namcot or the Japanese release of... Star Wars for the Famicom. Mm. And there are a couple of parts in there that are prototypical, but nothing that you consider you're up there with your R-Type or anything like that. It would be something to see, that's for certain. Yeah. You, oh, you know what may be the closest you'll ever get on this? I was thinking those um, Tiger, um, the plug-and-plays. Oh. That's probably where you're going to find the closest thing to those. Right. And there's, I've got a couple of the, of the Star Wars plug-and-plays, um... I don't remember if Jack Pacific did them or who made them, but one of them looks like Yoda's head, and then the other looks like Darth Vader's bodysuit. And those have real janky, kind of bootleg quality Star Wars games. There may be a couple of shmups in there, um, but they're, they're not good. Um, so it would be nice to see something official. That would be Star Wars shmup. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got the Rogue Squadron series, which, yeah, they're not shmups, but it it's the idea of shmups, but just done in a in a first person or third person kind of perspective. So that's probably as close as we're gonna get. But it would be nice to to dream about that. All right, our next one comes to us from at John PV. Hmm, what about Norse? Just thought about Thor flying around shooting lightning and throwing his hammer. Maybe a Mistborn game where you play a coin shot, or maybe a full Mistborn shooting coins. Or Superman-like characters, since Supes doesn't kill, firing laser beams from their eyes. Or, oh, what about those shrimp there, most powerful punch that superheats the water around it? A game based around those sending out shockwaves from your attack? And, and Twitter user, the, at the real bazoon engine... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the Twitter user at the real Beruzendi Gurdi noticed that that was a pistol shrimp. Yes, I would have to do the Superman shmup. The I would think that if I remember correctly, the C sixty four had something that was pretty much that. Huh. It was Superman shooting down stuff. 
And then the Genesis version of Superman the game, not to be confused with the really, really weird NES or Famicom version, has a more arcadey feel. And I think that even the arcade game, Superman the arcade game, has some of that. Right. It's mainly like Superman shooting asteroids and stuff and, you know, space with lasers. But the C64 is the closest that you're going to get for a Superman STG. Hmm. A shrimp STG. Now that sounds good. I would like to see more crazy seafood. In a world where a finger can be a, a STG hero and you have, you know, something with a finger or just crazy stuff in general, I would love to see a STG equivalent of Octodad. Let's go for it. <laughs> uh, Ace of Seafood as a shmup. Or like... Well, it sort of is in some way. The, the reverse some of way the... Say, sorry, I was going to say some might call it a masterpiece. Oh, Yes. Or like the reverse of the Darius series, where instead of playing Proko and Tiat, you're you're the shrimp trying to <laughs> take out the the uh, like you're the boss trying to take out the these pesky little ships that keep shooting at you. <laughs> it sort of sounds like in some ways a uh, reverse EDF, right? Right. <laughs> China. I mean, EDF had its own thing too with the STG and. So did, uh, what's that one? Is it wrong to pick up girls in a dungeon or what? Oh, I think that's close to the it, name. Yeah, or the, is it wrong to shoot them up girls in a dungeon? Yeah, there's so many different things that the that this genre can just go to. But I, I, I mean, heck, we have the newest uh, Toho game. What's that game? Um, oh. Toho 21 Incessant Pudding? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's Unconnected Marketeers. Yeah. That 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 game in itself, I mean, can prove that just about anything can be into a SDG, and <laughs> a lot of times some great creativity is born out of that. I, I was playing those Toho games, and they are not—they're uh, not new friendly. They kick my butt, and uh, you know I keep coming back for more. Or even what's that uh, game that's like Ketsu that Mark MSX always likes? Oh, Battle Traverse. <laughs> Battle Traverse. I mean, the uh, stuff that comes out of independent developers is great, and I hope that we see more of the, this, all these wacky ideas, because you never know what's going to stick and make it a fun game to play. Right. Uh, our last entry comes from Talc33, who says, How about the eradication of the human race for the good of planet Earth, carried out by a neighboring alien race? That's an interesting idea. Uh, wow. Isn't that uh, like Space Invaders? Space <laughs> Eradication? Yeah, it's, no, it's I mean, like a reverse Space Invaders. There is a game that plays close to that, but not fully. It's like we were playing Undercover Operative, and it was sort of a role-playing game. Um, Sigma Star Saga for the Game Boy Advance. Oh, sure. That sort of straddles that line a little bit, but yeah, I think it's a good idea. I would... I'd like to see that as more of an offshoot. Like, Parodius series, for all intents and purposes, is done. And I would love to see maybe something done in the style of Otomedius, where you, you know, they, I guess they had a bacterian girl in there, but it wasn't quite the same. Right. I would like to see the structure. It, it's almost like a prototypical game sack. Uh, Entry and they always say, "Yes, you're saving these people," but I like to defend that these people are trying to save your planet, and you're the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it's almost like a larger meta idea, similar to you know, on a much grander scale, to something like 1943, because 1943 was interesting in that it's a Japanese company designing a game where you're playing a an American or Allied pilot taking on Japanese forces in the Pacific theater during World War II. And so it's kind of interesting how 40 years after the war, you've got these designers who are sort of making this game looking from the other perspective, looking at it from the the other side of the, the coin, so to speak. And so I could see that as kind of a a larger meta-narrative version of that where you're you're playing an alien race wiping out life on earth or or humanity or what have you you know in in sort of a I'm not even sure what to call it a sort of yeah I'm it it seems odd to me right off the top of my head but being part of the human race, I'm kind of attached to myself, so the idea of being wiped out doesn't appeal to me that much, but I kind of understand the the idea of it, you know, as a narrative device. Yeah, I think where it would really work well is if it's an offshoot or done in the style of Destroy All Humans. You've got that 50s camp. Mm, sure. Where with, yeah, or like with EDF, where it would play really well. Right, a bit maybe tongue in cheek, self aware kind of, kind of thing. We have that. It's called Parodius. <laughs> right. Yeah, for me, uh, the the one that I would like to see is Egyptian mythology. You know, we've we've seen bits and pieces of that in a couple of different games, like in in Sector X or in Hellfire, but there really hasn't been anything that focuses in on that. You know, so we have something <clears throat> more recently like Pawarumi, which is sort of a alternate future kind of thing where Aztec civilization uh, continued to flourish and then became really advanced. And so you've got these these craft that can fly around and shoot all these various energy weapons and things. And so something like that I think would be interesting to explore and either doing it in that kind of alternate future sort of way or maybe even in a in an alternate reality or, or fantasy type of way where you know you're playing some kind of um, I don't know some kind of person or something that is standing up and fighting against uh, uh, Ra and Nefertiti and uh, you know some of the other some of the other Egyptian gods. That would be kind of a cool idea, I think. Um, so you know, Manufacture Forty Three did Pawarumi, so I, I I doubt they're listening, but in the off chance that they are, maybe uh, maybe bring us an Egyptian mythology shmup next. <laughs> Yeah, I would go with a, a different... I mean, I like Egyptian. I think that it's definitely needed. But I would definitely go with a... Maybe an Incan one. I think that would be cool. There, I mean, the Sierra 
games Inca and Inca 2 were definitely out there and experimental and interesting. If you ever look at the intro for the first Inca, it's out there. But I think a STG where you're playing El Dorado, maybe riding a giant pan flute in order to... Or say your ship's a giant pan flute in order to destroy the conquistadors. Will make for an interesting game. It, it strikes me very much in the vein of Jamestown. Hmm. You know, they could even keep the old jingle where the the steak gets what's for dinner jingle at the end. <laughs> well, maybe they can't. <laughs> uh, but I I think something based upon Incan mythology, something maybe, or were you just fighting conquistadors who have come to take over your land? Where you are El Dorado would be a good style for an STG. And certainly get all sorts of bosses out there, and you know, um, had your Nazca lines, Gradius had your Moai heads. I am certain that you could come up with several different weird things for a game of this stature. Sure, yeah, I mean, I could kind of see that in a, a sort of a Jamestown vein, or even something like you know, Cloudmaster or Chukataisen kind of a thing. Um, where it's sort of based upon the journey to the west, sort of of uh, storyline. So yeah, that that would I think that would be cool. Yeah, hey, you know, it could feature music by ZZ Top. <laughs> uh, well, thank you everyone who participated with us and uh, answered the question for us and and gave us your thoughts. Yes, thank you for to all who replied and took the time to fill it up. So let's shout out the participants uh, for the game as we lead into discussion here, uh, which this month it was pretty slim. It was you and me and B.Reality, and I think Geriatric Danmaku might have jumped in just briefly. So, starting out... uh, the game, basically, Veritra began life in 2016 as Mugen Veritra, and it was done by a Japanese studio called Neotro, and it was released on mobile platforms, so Android and iOS. And essentially it started out as, a, as an endless, horizontal scrolling shooter, where each run would be a different experience and you know the difficulty kind of ramping up as you go along uh, Neotro themselves started out in November of 2016 and uh, they are from the Kanagawa prefecture area of Japan which is like I think south and west of Tokyo uh, Neotro the name is a portmanteau of Neo and Retro based on what I found on their website. And they have developed a couple of other mobile titles. Uh, Q-Ari Zoo, which is a puzzle game, and another game called Starmate, which is a sort of puzzle adventure. They also have a twin-stick shmup that is in development right now called Never Awake, um, which is supposed to be not only on Steam, but also on all current platform, all all current consoles, uh, that is supposed to be releasing early next year. And 
based on what I saw on their website, it looks like there are two main employees, and uh, the, it says their business is uh, planning, system design, design, development, and sales of websites and game applications, planning, publishing, and sales of publications such as books and CD-ROMs, production of illustrations, CG, advertising media, etc., and all businesses I incidental to the preceding items. That was the uh, translation of the information about the the company on their website. Yeah, so it's one of those where everybody wears every hat. Kind of, yeah. Uh, now, Mugen Veritra was expanded to a full game with the release of Veritra Complete Edition on Steam in 2018, and of course that's what we played this month. The original Mugen Veritra mode is unlockable in the game, along with a caravan mode, or score attack, called Setsuna Veritra. Uh, and then, just last year, there was an updated version of the game uh, called Veritra Hexa, which was released for the Hexa Arcadia arcade platform. And that includes the new Hexa mode, and then also the caravan mode. And the Hexa mode has some new stages. It has a new intro stage. And then when you complete that intro stage, then you can kind of choose your path. And so it, it branches out into different paths, not unlike a Darius-style game. And then that uh, includes some new enemies, uh, some new bosses, uh, a new arranged soundtrack... And then some tweaks to the weapon system, including a couple of new weapons. Um, the the main game that we played uh, consists of five stages, and then culminates with a, a final fight with the dragon Veritra itself. Uh, now, in right, that's on standard difficulty. If you play on expert or above, then you can get to the TLB or true last boss. Which is uh, called Cur Veritra itself again. Yeah, Curse Veritra, which is like a smaller version of the dragon with different attacks. Yeah, sort of. In some ways, it's almost like uh, if you were to face off with Vic Viper, and then you had another Vic Viper that had a mustache. You know, <laughs> evil, evil, evil Vic Viper. <laughs> so along the same line, it's, it's basically a palette swap, is what it is of of your ship. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it, it looks a lot like a slightly larger version of your character, but, you know, with different attacks. And as we alluded to earlier, uh, some of the elements in Veritra are based on uh, elements of Hinduism. So Veritra is a, a serpent, demon, or dragon in the v Vedic relic uh, religious texts and is representative of drought. And, uh, of course, Veritra is the main antagonist in the game. and then Right, it, drought or darkness. Right. And then Indra, the character that you uh, control, the protagonist, uh, is the Vedic equivalent of Zeus, or, you know, a similar kind of uh, king of the gods or ruler abo above all the gods, and serves as the god of lightning, thunder, and rain, and, according to what I was reading, also the god of war. And... Uh, Indra uh, is also um, important in several other uh, 
Eastern religions as well under various names. So it's it's an interesting setup for uh, a shoot 'em up game. It, it's definitely unique and something that you know I wouldn't have expected, but it's kind of a neat uh, kind of a neat way to sort of utilize those elements in a different context. Yeah, it's definitely better than your standard fare. It's something fresh. And it's been iterated upon and refined, which was definitely nice to see. It was really interesting to see the progression. Stage one seemed sort of normal. And then we started getting on to, you know, stage two. It started to become a little bit more like steampunkish. And then three got into full R-type variety. And then four went back to, you know, everything is happy and sort of growth. And then 5 just went in the very futurist technical. It's very diverse, but none of them actually just make you question why it's there. It flows and it's natural. It's just, it doesn't come across as being, as any one stage overstaying its welcome. Right. I, I felt that it was just right for what it was trying to convey and I didn't feel like anything went on too long or anything was cut short breath of fresh air yeah well and I guess that kind of leads nicely into talking about the 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 five stages of the game because each stage is specifically themed and and has one of the cool things is you remember when we did Jamestown the the setup for each stage was this lengthy sort of deal that was sort of dramatic in its in its um, setup in terms of of a brief explanation of what that stage was supposed to be that you know it was a daring rescue or it was infiltrating the enemy base or whatever it was and this game does something similar and it has these these sort of short bursts of yeah of, uh, of story right yes the only thing that i would say to that is they go by so fast i could only read a few words each time and i sort of had to piece it together right i, I wish that that maybe had been um <clears throat> spoken you know i i was recently watching the uh, star wars clone series with my son and I think that maybe a voiceover intro like that would be a welcome or letting the players know like right before or it doesn't need to be with the stage but like in a black screen with a maybe a, or a background something to give a little bit more story you know what I'm talking about when the, those emulated newsreels from the 1930s yeah like news of the world that type of narrative where it talks over and shows that, or maybe just like a screen beforehand. He's trying to put it right when the action starts. It really makes it hard to read that. Even though I enjoyed what it said and it added to the game, I, I couldn't do it as I was trying to deal with all the popcorn appearing on screen. Right. Yeah, when I when I went back to get the descriptions, I actually had to go back to my run of the game, my last run of the game, and get to where all of that was on screen and then pause the video so I could read it 
Um, but I do think that they're fairly well written and they're they're kind of interesting. And so, like stage one, the prologue, it says, Indra soars across the sky. The screams of the people and the darkness engulfing the sky are signals of the monster's revival. Indra's sole purpose of being is to destroy that evil, which threatens to swallow the world whole. I, I kind of appreciate the the drama of it and the sort of gravitas that it's trying to convey in these descriptions. Yeah, they're good stuff. It's just not really well placed. It, when the, when there's a lot of action that immediately starts with any stage, if you're trying to read the screen, you're going to die. So it, maybe just put them on their own screen. Yeah. And then have it have it spoken or just have it on their own screen with some some background or some, something you know changing background or something like that it doesn't need to be overly complex just enough to convey the story because it really does add a lot to the game right and i i do think that a a spoken word kind of prologue for for each bit actually would be would add a little bit more depth and as I said, gravitas to the proceedings and, and make each stage feel a little bit more like, oh, this is like serious, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, it's a lot better than making up stuff in your head. Like one day, I, Veritra was strolling through the forest, picking daisies, and then he stumbled upon this. You know, it's or, <laughs> just, it certainly gives a lot more intent to the store makes you more invested and I don't know where I'm going with this but you can cut that out later (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I mean the nice thing though is it's sort of the descriptions sort of give you context to what you're doing so like stage one is a prologue you're just flying through the air you're taking on enemies and then you sort of come up along the ground uh, toward the end to fight Scorpio, which is the first boss. It's this giant scorpion thing that has this red, I don't even know what you call it, like an orb that's embedded in its in its shell that it reveals once in a while, and that's its weak point. And it, you know, it does this thing where it lunges its tail at you and, and shoots lasers and things like that. Um, well, you know, it would be remiss or... Uh disappointing if they went with the STG staple of a giant enemy crab with a weak point that you could hit for massive damage. <laughs> Much better use a scorpion. Right. Or like, you know, stage two is called the Steel Guardian, and it explains that that basically was a battleship that at one point was used to protect the citizens from from demon invasions. Well, now the ship has become infested with uh, with monsters that are uh, helping Veritra, and so you fly into that ship looking for Veritra, trying to take it out, and then you face this giant spider at the end called Spydra. And then stage three... In which the game becomes Salamander or R-Type. Right. Uh, so then then you fly inside the ship. Boy, does that music take a weird turn, but it's it's a nice weird turn. It just... It goes from very symphonic to just really, um, it's not quite technical. What would you call it? 
upbeat electronic. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's hard to describe, but but you know, stage three, you're inside the ship, but it's very biological, and so it like explains that that uh, that there are fibers everywhere, cellular fibers that are are from Veritra. So it's like Veritra has infested the the inside of this battleship, and so you're flying through it and you know going there. Well, then. That turns out to be a dead end. So then you're in this ancient forest, and um, as soon as you go there, you're just being attacked. And so it's like, oh, okay. So obviously, they were waiting for me, and I'm on the right track. And so then, um, I forgot to mention stage three. At the end of stage three, you fight this Veritra clone, which is very much a Dom Caratops. Uh, homage, you know, since you said R-Type, basically the boss of that stage is... is yeah, uh, the boss of the first stage of R-Type. Right. Uh, and then in the Ancient Ruins, the stage four, the boss is called Garudia, and it's this sort of large flying insect thing with two it, smaller drone insects that help Yeah, it's the bee you. from Dodonpachi too. <laughs> right. Uh, and then stage five is is called the Sealed Ancient Empire, where it's like you followed Veritra and now you're flying through this ancient civilization, but it's advanced technology, you know, so it's kind of like an odd, I don't know, an odd thing. But it's, I don't know, it reminds me of the cube stage in Gradius 3 mixed with some of the sort of retro future kind of uh, stages and other shooting games. Yeah, it's, it's the stage five is very retro future. <clears throat> Everything's got very clean and shiny surfaces that you'd see on there. There's lines of energy flowing through stuff. It, it's similar to what you see in the futurism that people were expecting. Like, you know, everybody's wearing one jumpsuit type look that you got from the 1950s futuristic look or some of the stuff you see in Detroit become human right or like Tron yeah I mean everything Tron is a good example everything is very you got one look and then you have your energy lines going through it and or anyone who's played a lot of the Assassin's Creed games when you're playing in in the vault that look it's this the same look that you have and it's it may be stereotypical, but it does communicate very well. And I, I think that the the way that they use the box to as shields for attacks that the boss throws out and some of the enemies throw out really plays well to it. So it's more than just set dressing. It helps with the flow of the game and gives you an idea that these are here for a purpose. And then, man, that stage five boss really makes good use of those stuff. And I, I think that he's the hardest boss in the game, in my opinion. Oh, Obmont, the stage five boss? Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with him early on. But that's that's one of those fights that there are a couple of things you can do to help make that fight easier. Uh, one of the things that I noted when I was watching B.Reality stream the game is... There's a, there's a couple of times during that fight where he'll bum rush you and just get right up in your face. 
And the thing that I found is when he does that, don't move unless you need to make an adjustment to get out of the way of one of those floating cubes that comes along. But otherwise, the lasers that he shoots will go around you, and if you can then blast him with one of your one of your boost shots, then you can make him back off and uh, move into the next phase. Yeah, and the one thing that I found helpful in this game, or was thankfully, or is the way that this game handled speed. It was nice to just be able to press a button and adjust the speed instead of having to deal with power-ups or anything else, and it allowed me to get a good flow, which is really what's needed for when playing on expert or above. Yeah. Uh, it It's something where you're constantly going to have to be dodging and maneuvering through, and you've really got to know your, your spacing and the dragon's hitbox. And it felt good to avoid a lot of the usual Gradius syndrome that could come with this title, where you have you ha- have a fo- A and B sets of upgrades, right? Right. Your first upgrade starts out with oh, I, I can't. There are four different colors, right? There's a blue, there's a yellow, a green, and a purple for both sets. And after a while playing on the first set, you can unlock the second set. But, uh, I got to be honest, when the second set purple is what seems to make the most sense for playing the game. I, especially on expert, when it, in, those are you familiar with the laser and R type Leo, or it can angle itself at right angles down or up in attack stuff. That's what the purple laser does, and in, at least in set B. And that is so invaluable. I think that stage four on expert would be, I mean, even when I saw you playing on normal, where they have spots where those, they have, similar to what would be in Gradius, you have little home, little bases down below that then shoot out ships that go straight upwards and then go in an L shape in order to fly out and attack you. We're trying to attack those with any other weapon but that purple just seems really hard to do I don't know how you're gonna get in there and destroy you or destroy those it's it's one of the things where, where those the weapon choices are nice but they sort of fall apart when you're playing on the higher difficulties and forcing you to choose one path I wish that there would have been a little bit more thought put into those sure well, speaking of which, um, the game does... One, one of the th- things that is interesting about this game is that, unlike a lot of traditional Japanese design shmups where it's one-hit death, you actually get uh, a life bar of sorts in this game, where essentially you get three hits per life. And so you you have the ability to take three hits before you lose a dragon and, you know, sacrifice a life. Which I think is actually a good thing in in this game because the hitbox is a little bit indeterminate. I think it's kind of the, the dragon's main center body portion. But I didn't feel like, even by the time I got 
done with the game at the end of the month. I didn't feel like I had a, a super good handle on exactly where you could take da- or where you know you were going to take damage and where you weren't. There were times that I felt like I got a little bit too close to maybe a rock face or something and I took damage and I felt like uh, should I really have taken damage there? You know, wasn't it just my tail overlapping kind of a thing? Or maybe getting too close to the ground or something like that. So there were there were times where it felt like, I don't know, it, like maybe the hitbox was a little bit bigger than it ought to be. But then other times where I, I felt like I probably should be taking damage, but I'm not. So it wasn't quite clear to me what what the hitbox actually was because there's no indicator. Yeah, I ran into a little bit of that too. I would say it's not quite as large as you'd see in Otomedius, but it's not something quite small and manageable as you're going to get in Damaku. It was a little bit hard to tell, and that goes into maybe a, a quality of life feature that they could add, where you could just turn on easy mode or normal mode or whatever they want. You could turn on and actually see the hitbox. Right. Yeah, even if it's even if it's not just a big, you know, a big neon-colored blob over your character that sort of ruins the aesthetic of the game. You know, even if they did something subtle, like make the hitbox portion of the the ship glow lightly or pulsate somehow, you know, uh, and sort of make it look like it's natural in the context of the game, but give us some kind of indication as to uh, where you're actually going to take damage. Speaking speaking of damage, the, one of the things I found interesting about this game, and I'm not sure if I like it or not, but it was definitely interesting, is the bullets match the stage in color. Usually with an STG, you're going to have different types of bullets, right? Where you're going to say, like, oh, this are the fast bullets, these are small bullets, and you'll see, you know, shining bullets, and, well, like, there's... All sorts of, there's bullets of the rainbow of these days with them micro games. We talked about earlier with Battle Gregan how they had change around because some of the standard bullets that you'd see were, well, were really hard to see, so they had to change them. And M2 made them in the PS4 release pink and flashing. Right. To help people differentiate. What with these is it's the shape of the bullets. And so in the first stage, black stands out better for the staple color of bullets, so they went with that. But the bullets that look like footballs, you can destroy, and everything else you have to dodge or use your little options to swallow up, similar to the way you'd use a force bit in R-Type. I thought it was an interesting choice to stick with the shape versus the color. And on stage two, they're white. Right. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's an interesting approach. And then, of course, in stage... Uh, let me think. I think in in a couple of the later stages, they start to vary a little bit more. But yeah, it's an interesting approach. I think from a, from a visual acuity standpoint, it's probably a good idea. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to continuity, but from a playability standpoint... I, I think it works. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that I, I could take or leave it, but I think it works pretty well for this. You know, I just, 
I don't know. I, I wonder if this... I, I guess I'm stuck on whether or not this is a trend I want to see going forward, or the, this is something that only seems to work in this game. Yeah, I, I think for the art style that they went with, it works. If you're going to go with something a little bit more low resolution, so to speak, something that's much more of a retro pixel art type of game, you know, like we like we talked about with Demonizer, or as we've talked about in, in the past with something like Battle Garego or Katsui, you probably wouldn't want to do that because you, you need something that's going to stand out a little bit more against all the backgrounds and be very visually distinct. But here, with the kind of graphical style and visual aesthetic that they're going for, I don't know, it, it kind of works. The other thing I'm wondering about, too, is how this started out as a mobile game, right? Yeah. So I wonder if some of these design choices were made because they expect people to be playing on small phones or maybe tablets. That's possible. Yeah, that's possible. Real quick, I wanted to go over the last stage. I know we talked about this. The last stage really is a big fight against Veritra itself. It, in a, a giant dragon form. I, I like the way that this boss battle was done. There's not really any lead into it. I mean, there's a couple of popcorn enemies, but that's really about it. It seemed, in some ways, anticlimactic. I mean, I, I like the grandeur of it and the aesthetic, but it, it seemed a lot easier versus the, the stage 5 boss that I fought, or even the stage 4 boss before it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the ver the fight with Veritra is definitely easier than the two boss fights that precede it. It's it's not it's not insultingly easy like you know the original Gradius or what have you when you get to the end and you just have to shoot the connectors yeah. for the brain or what have you. Those were done on purpose, though. Right. Those were done to start saying you've earned it. You've gotten this far. You went through a all this, here's your break. Right. But but it was a... But there was still a, a some challenge to it, and it was an interesting set piece. Yeah, as Mark would like to say, you can't sit at the middle of the screen and just hit the fire button and win. Right. Yeah, you definitely have to be <clears throat> a lot more, a lot more active and a lot more mobile in that fight. Now, Veritra has four difficulty levels. There's normal, which starts you with five lives, but then there's no extend score, so you have no opportunity to earn extra lives. Yep, and keep in mind, as we talked about earlier, each one of these lives gives you three hits before you lose it. Correct. Uh, and normal is the easiest difficulty. Then there's arcade, where you start with three lives, and then you earn extends at 2 million and 7 million points. Uh, Expert starts you off again, three lives, and you earn extends at 4 million and 12 million. And then insane difficulty, uh, you earn extends at 6 million and 15 million points. Yeah, insane difficulty lives up to its name. Yeah. It, it is uh, brutally hard. Uh, um, not quite Gradius 3 hard, but Gradius 3 arcade hard, but boy, does it come close. Export difficulty is a lot more manageable. That's where I played most of my time, and 
I can make it to stage three, usually on one credit, and even so that was quite a challenge to deal with, especially that spider boss. It loves to activate that uh, focus laser. Oh, yeah. Quite a bit an expert. But with the arcade mode, the one thing I would like to test out and see if that's actually just the uh, Arcadia port from, in difficult, standard difficulty from the arcade mode. Oh, sure. That would be interesting if, if they use that as the basis for the ex-Arcadia release. You know, one, I feel like that in some ways I sort of missed the boat with the Sharp uh, X68K and how most of the stuff was developed, but I swear the Arcadia yeah, is becoming almost like a this generation's um, Sharp X68K where it may be worth the asking price, which is a pretty high asking price, in order to be able to play some of these games. Right. Because they're so well done. Yeah. Uh, I just saw Gimmick was ported. We have this. Uh, we have Natsuki. Um, I'm going to say it again. Natsuki Chronicles. And then what other titles are on there? I know there's some other SDGs. Uh, is it Raiden on there? There's a, there's a port of Infinos. Uh, or Infinos Gaiden. There's uh, Akata Blue, um, which is, of course, started as a mobile game, and then uh, now there's an arcade version that is a full-fledged campaign. Uh, and then there's also uh, an EXA version of Dodonpachi Sada Ojo. All right, SDOJ. Yeah. Uh, I think it's SDOJ Exa label is what it's called, actually. So, yeah. Um, yeah, plenty of stuff going on there. Really oh. does strike me as the Sharp X68K of our time. Kind of. And then also there's a, an arcade port now of Blazing Chrome on that platform. Oh, that may have sealed it. <laughs> uh, I know what you're budgeting for next year. <laughs> forget the garage. Forget the new house. Forget that roof. We're bringing in... That's sharp. Uh, oh my gosh. We're bringing in Arcadia. Right. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Insane Difficulty lives up to the name. I messed around with that for a few minutes earlier, and I wouldn't say it quite reaches Danmaku or Bullet Hell levels, but there are a lot of bullets. There's a lot of revenge bullets, and you definitely have to be a lot more precise and intentional about your routing through stages because you cannot reflex dodge everything that's that's in there there's just way too much yeah it's going to be more like in with your your cave scoring um routing you want to make certain that you know exactly where every bullet's going to go and it's just one of the things where you got to practice 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 all over yeah again and honestly for most people Stick with normal, you'll have a very good time, and you'll enjoy the game and see everything it has to offer that Well, most everything has to offer that way. Right. Yep. The game uses a basic three-button system. you got one button that's your auto-fire, and then you've got a button that fires what's called the boost laser. Yeah, it's like your focus shot. Kind of, yeah. Uh, and then you've got a button to adjust your speed. And there are five different speed settings. I think the default is two, maybe? 
It's either two or three, so you're close enough. Yeah, I found that three or four was probably the sweet spot, but I I spent a lot of time playing on the default, and I found that was okay for most of most of my play. But yeah, there were definitely times when I probably should have bumped it up. When I was playing on expert, I thought that five might be needed, but I ended up playing most of it on four. <laughs> that seemed to be the sweet spot with expert. Allow you to fly around enough, but not so fast where you're flying into stuff unintentionally. Right. Yeah, and and so that kind of transitions over into talking about the the focus shot or the boost laser, which is kind of the the main mechanic of the game. So when you first start uh, and and go to play the game, you're given a choice of your your weapon type, and of course. You've got Type A and Type B. A Type A is a series of four weapons with these different colors. And then Type B is a second set of weapons with kind of the same color scheme, but they're different uh, different function. And so the idea is that you've got your regular auto-fire shot that you can use, and then with this boost mechanic, you press the button to shoot this thick laser or like fire out of a dragon's mouth almost reminds me of you know classic Godzilla where you've got this just almost beam of flame coming out of its mouth and so that is a stronger a stronger shot or stronger weapon but there's a gauge at the bottom of the screen that essentially gives you however much of that that you have allotted well for each weapon type that you pick or that you use it has a different function uh, secondary function during this boost mode Uh, and so then depending on which weapon you choose or which weapon you collect throughout the game then that can strategically change how you use that and then also of course the the boost mechanic is is the the main draw for the scoring as well, which we can get into later. But uh, you, so as you use that boost or secondary weapon, your your gauge will deplete, and you can refill that by just firing your regular weapon, or you can also build that gauge back up by collecting power up icons. So you're not actually changing power level. Uh, you just basically start out at at the default power level, and that's all you have. So it's just a matter of collecting the weapon icons to choose which weapon type you want to use. Because you always have a standard forward shot that shoots out of Indra's mouth, but it's what your options are doing that is what these weapon icons change. And so for the Type A set of weapons... You've got a blue weapon, which is your default, and you have two options that are always with you. And so with that one, you have options that trail you like in the Gradius games, but then if you move down, they'll sort of move up above you, or if you move up, they'll kind of swing down below you, and they shoot shots that are similar to what you're shooting. And then, of course, when you fire the boost laser, it locks them in place, and shoots kind of a smaller beam similar to what you're doing. 
the red weapon puts your options above and below and sort of places them behind Indra and they'll shoot in opposite of the direction that you're moving. So if you move Indra forward, they'll swing around and shoot behind you. Or if you move down, they'll shoot up. And so it kind of does that. And so you can kind of swing that around and aim that in different different places. Uh, and then when you use the boost, it locks those in place and then shoots out the you know the shots from that angle. Uh, and it continues to do that while you're holding the boost button, even if you're moving. The green weapon will make the options rotate around you. And so that helps for deflecting bullets. But also, while you're shooting, then those options will glow green and sort of have a larger aura around them to make that ability to deflect bullets and damage enemies greater. And then when you use the boost shot, then it sort of sends those spinning options out in front of you then to damage stuff uh, kind of as it travels forward on the screen. Yeah, it's like a wrecking ball right? The way that deals with this. I, I initially tried using this because I like the way it dealt with this sort of... I mentioned earlier in Stage 4 that we had some bases that were very much inspired or, or just copy-pasted from Gradius where they would shoot out ships. Those were very useful for hitting ground enemies, and I thought that would be a good yeah. start. However, you know, as we'll talk with here, there's some other weapons that unlock that seemed to be doing a better job. But at least initially, this is where I would stick with. Yeah, it almost reminds me of when you use the boost mechanic and it sends the options forward. It reminds me of a slower version of like the Leaf Shield weapon from Mega Man 3. I thought Leaf Shield was Mega Man 2. Oh, you're right. You're right. It, it was okay, Mega no, Man I'm 2. Just, I want to make sure I'm not going crazy here. It's, it's late and I'm hoping the caffeine is still with me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the yellow weapon puts the options kind of behind you and then angles them out slightly. And so they're shooting these yellow shots uh, out at an angle while you're shooting forward. Uh, so it's sort of creating a almost like a three-way shot. It, yeah, it's like a spread gun. That's what really what it, the yellow weapon is a spread gun that comes out from your options. Yeah. When you use the boost shot, it does this cool thing where the options suddenly move up in front and then they're doing like a three, each one of them is doing a three-way shot at uh, about like a 45 degree angle. So then you've got this huge swath of fire coming out from both of these things. So you're covering about a 70 or 75 degree area, if you will, with all of this fire plus your boost laser. Um, so I found that to be particularly useful Particularly, especially when, if you if you can use it properly or time it right, you can get major DPS if you get right up into a boss's face or uh, a you know a larger enemy's face, and essentially use the boost where you're putting that the options right up against the weak point and doing massive damage all at once you know, in short bursts and things. So there's definitely some strategy that you can go for with that. And then the type B 
set of weapons. Essentially, the blue there's a blue S weapon, and that functions identical to the way it does in Type A, so there's no change there. Then there's the orange weapon, which fires angled shots similar to the yellow weapon in Type A, but instead it puts those options out front, and then they can sort of swivel behind you as you hit the button and hold it down. And so, I don't know, it's a little bit difficult to use and a little bit harder to sort of figure out. And then when you use the boost, it just doubles the amount of firepower that's coming out. The emerald weapon puts the options above and below you, similar to the yellow in Type A, sort of at a slight angle. And it shoots these large green rings that are not unlike the uh, nuclear Cheerios, so to speak, that you get from the Moai in the Gradius games. Yeah, I always thought that the Emerald Weapon was this game's ripple laser. In a way, it kind of is. You know, it covers a large area, and it does a decent amount of damage. And so it's sort of like the spread gun in, in this type, but in a more effective way i guess so it, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good uh weapon for covering a lot of area i know this is the one that b.reality reality favored when he was playing and then when you do the boost laser it moves the it sort of sets the options wherever you are when you activate it and then they sort of twirl around and do like a vulcan kind of cannon shot and then you can move around and they'll stay in place. So it was similar to the... Um, I don't remember which one it was from Jamestown, where you would activate your, your focus shot, and it would sort of drop these two drones that would create the laser. And as long as you were holding the button down, that laser would stay, even if you were moving around elsewhere on the screen. And so it kind of functions the same way. And then the purple laser, which is what you were talking about... The R-Type laser. R-Type yeah, Leo laser. It's basically the green laser from R-Type Leo, but as purple. And so your options sit above and below Indra, centered, and then, like the red weapon in Type A, it aims based on your movement, except it's only forward and backward. So if you move backward, the lasers will fire forward. If you move forward, they'll fire backward but they'll do the same kind of thing where they'll shoot straight out and then they'll angle 90 degrees up or down to hit whatever their target is. So it makes them very effective and, and good to use for picking off enemies and making sure that you're, that you're getting stuff on the screen. Now, when you use the boost, those, instead of firing just small lasers, then that also becomes homing purple lasers that get much bigger and will sort of do this thing where they'll home in on an enemy and if it's a larger enemy they'll sort of sit and spin in place and just do damage until it's destroyed and then they'll move on to the next target yeah it's the thing i like about the purple weapon is it allows you to take care of your a's and your b's your popcorn and then your larger or mid-range enemies so you use the popcorn to take care of with a smaller fire, and then you use a focus in order to take out of larger enemies or medium-sized enemies pretty quickly. Right. You were talking before about quality of life features. 
the one major quality of life feature that it does have is that there is a practice mode where when you go in and and play the game as you reach different different stages those will unlock then for practice so that would give you the ability to essentially do stage level practice the one advantage to that in this game is that because there are no power-ups and because the speed is variable and you can set that you're not dealing with gradius syndrome at the start the only thing that's different is that you're going to start with the blue weapon rather than whatever weapon it was that you had from the previous stage. However, generally speaking, at the start of every stage, you're given an opportunity to pick one of the four weapons, so you only have to slightly adjust your strategy a little bit for the first few seconds of that stage until you pick up your weapon of choice, and then you can kind of route the rest of the stage by doing that. But I know you mentioned, kind of in our discussion, some other things that you would like to see. Uh, and so I'm curious to hear whatever, what other quality of life features do you feel like this game could really benefit from? Uh, first and foremost, I feel like almost any game these days, you're going to get released on Steam needs a quick retry feature. I don't know how many times I've been like, oh, that's, I messed up this run, it's my fault, let me retry it. It should be with pretty much every release. It's been driving me nuts, especially with this month's game of Gunbird, where every time I hit start, it goes back to whatever I put last. So sometimes I'll meant to just pause for a second and continue, but it's on return to title or something. It's just, it's one of those things that should become standard and isn't. It's really drives me nuts. And the fact that Verita didn't have it was not as bad as Gunbird when it's driving me nuts, but it's definitely noticeable. Some of the other stuff would have been nice to sort of maybe some gauges or something to get a better idea of how scoring is reached if you wanted to properly route through it. Granted, it's not your Don Maku style where this it's made for a little bit of a slower paced where you're not grazing by you know, millions of bullets on screen. But it would have been nice to get a little bit more information or to get a better idea of how much you're hitting on there. Maybe even like, like a lore section would have been nice too. A well, little bit, go to the R-type section, and like here's what this enemy is called. This is what's on here. Get a better idea of how the game is played out. Now, I'm not saying you need to come up with the uh, come up with an encyclopedia of uh, Shootastica or Shootastica <laughs> or something like that in there, but just having something in there that gives it a little bit about the enemy in there. You do a quick restart. Have ability for people to see what's going on. You know, take a look at fighting games. Fighting games for years have not. Here's the commands you entered. Here's how much it damage it took for on there. Like, can I get away with shooting this twice? This enemy twice and then it dies? <clears throat> you know, how, how am I going to become a master at this game? And what tools can I properly use? It is stuff that M2 does so well and love to see. But the basic quality of life feature that I love to see with any SDG release has to be quick restart. Because you're going to have those runs where you just do something dumb or 
Maybe you do something fantastic and you want to restart, but like, hey, I fantastically crashed into this, uh, the first enemy here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, know, you always laugh when people are, you ever see those videos where people try out Super Mario Brothers for the first time and, and they always hit that first Goomba, like, man, that's such a beginner's trap, and then you immediately do it? Yep. Stu- that happens to all of us. It's just human nature, and... A quick restart would help, other than having to go back through five menus in order to restart the game. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if it, if a game could be programmed in such a way that you could do a quick restart, and then as soon as you use a feature like that, then of course your score doesn't save to the leaderboard, or you know, it, it's kind of your score is nullified at that point. You know, you can still see what your score is doing, but it won't actually save your progress when you're done. But that would allow you to do a lot more intentional practice, I guess. Yeah, it's something that's going to make people more invested in the game. I would also like to see an option for a soundtrack there to be able to at least play someone there. Because the soundtrack in this game is quite good. I, I don't know if it's something that I would listen outside, but it, it, for the most part, you know, we'll talk about stage five in a little bit here, but for the most part, it fit very well and it was enjoyable. It wasn't something that... It wasn't in mad territory. It was more towards the, hey, this is pretty good territory. Right. That, yeah. That's about all I, all I would like as far as quality of life. Give me a reason to keep playing the game beyond the TLB. Let, let's shooting games, you know, they have their sort of phases on them, right? You get into them with your hey, this is fun. I'm going to credit feed my way through just to see this game. And then you get the people who start to get more serious and that's what the TLB mode and stuff is for, the second loop. And then you get the people who become absolute monsters or the speedrunners on this who really need those quality of life features. Uh, the quick, re- I can't tell you, even watching, um, what was, I know it wasn't, um, shoot, uh, it was a Ketsui, um, Moglar. Watching oh. Moglar do a stream, uh, and he uh, ended up having to restart three or four times before he f- finally got to the point where he felt comfortable enough to continue on with his run. That type of stuff just, I, I think, needs to be put in with, every game in order to give those people who are going to become truly invested in your game and champion your game a reason to do so. Yeah, and I will say when I was practicing that I reached a point where I started to use practice mode intentionally because I had kind of hit a wall with stage four. So I started to do specific practice on stage four and then stage five, which allowed me to make enough progress within the course of the month to, you know, get my clear on normal by the end of the month, literally the last day that I played it. So at least there's that, and it does help. Yeah, it definitely has more than most as far as quality of life features. But the fact... The fact that the M2 ports are out there and they set the standard really makes you start to realize how much more could be added in order to make it a complete package on here. Right. And, and that's not a detriment to, to the game. It's just that the bar is so high that it's 
it makes it makes it easier to, to see this. The game is totally playable and thoroughly enjoyable in its current form. It's just st- more stuff that I would like to see to get to the next level. Yeah. Um, now, as I mentioned toward the early part of the episode, you can unlock the the original Mugen Veritra by beating the game. Essentially, if you credit feed your way through the game, you can unlock this mode. And so this is the initial what spawned the game to begin with. And so it's an endless mode, and you you choose your weapon type before you start, and then that's what you're going to use that whole, that whole run. There are no power-up icons to collect because you've already chosen your weapon. You get one life, and so instead, what the the enemy carriers that would normally drop power-ups instead drop what's called a Mega Crush, which is a sort of pink uh, icon that floats around the screen, and it's a, a screen-clearing attack, but that it also re, uh, refills your boost gauge to the max. So it sort of serves two purposes. It's your get-out-of-jail-free card, since you don't have lives, that allows you to kind of clear the screen from all the all the insanity that's going on but also once you run out of your your boost attack you can grab one of those quick to refill it instantly so that you can start doing that so it really lends itself to a kind of score attack sort of approach by encouraging you to use the boost as much as possible to take out almost everything and grabbing those those Mega Crush deals to refill when you need to. And it's interesting because it's segmented up into these short little snippets, and they're called waves, and they're sort of randomly generated each time you play. And so you might see different things that are the same from one session to the next, but they sort of structure them in a way that you can kind of get them in a random order. The other cool thing I thought about uh, was that each of those waves is named after, uh, you know, like a rock or a heavy metal song. And so when I was messing with it earlier, I noticed that one of the waves was called Don't Stop Me Now, which is a Queen song. And then there was one called uh, Painkiller, which is a Judas Priest song. And then there was one uh, called Master of Puppets, which of course is Metallica. And there was another one that was called Light My Fire, which is a Doors song. And so I thought that was kind of cool, a nice little homage that they're uh, that they're doing with that, so that each little snippet or segment is uh, a call to some kind of a some kind of an artist or song. Um, but then the the Mugen mode does have its own its own unique music track. Did you mess around with Mugen mode much? I did not at all. In fact, I would spend as usual, I spent my time going around around the uh, expert mode roundabout. Sure. Continuously trying. This sounds pretty cool. I'll have to check this out. I, that's yeah. one of the things that I would love to have in the future. And some of the stuff is Ketsui had all these arranged soundtrack modes. I would love to have a, a metal or maybe a, a different, a, just a different take on the soundtrack. The soundtrack was good, but having multiple modes to choose from would certainly pre- prevent um, drain out as you're, you're trying to get to the TLB 
or practice modes. Sure. The other mode that you unlock, which is odd because even though it was the original game was called Mugen Veritra, Veritra, you when you go into when you select Mugen Veritra from the menu, you're given two options: Mugen Veritra and then Satsuna Veritra, which is the score or like the time attack or or caravan style mode. And you get two and a half minutes. You get five lives. When I was playing, I noticed there were times when it said secret bonus unlocked. So apparently there are secret bonuses that you can you can unlock, which is a thing in in caravan shooters. There's also something called the all crush bonus. Um, there are these spots where there's a whole row of these um, boxes, I guess you could call them, or you know terminal things that are in the scenery kind of behind you. And if you destroy the whole line of them, then you get this all crush bonus. Uh, but the big thing with the Satsuna Veritra is as you take out enemies, they drop these large pink crystals. And so each one of those crystals will refill a little bit of your boost gauge. And so kind of like the mega crush with the Mugen mode, this allows you to use the boost a lot and then make sure that you then go and mop up all the pink crystals so that you can continue to use that for scoring. And because you only have two and a half minutes, the thing you want to focus on is quick kills of the larger enemies and of like the boss and mid-boss characters that come out uh, because then you can milk a few extra enemy waves to make sure it maximize your score. So between quick kills, getting all the all the pink crystals, using the boost mode to make sure that you're ramping up your your multiplier, and then you know, kind of all that in combination is really how you how you maximize your score in that. So it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting mode. And of course at two and a half minutes, you know, you can jump in fire that up a few times and it's going to respect your time because you'll be able to just play for however many times makes sense and then, you know, and then stop. Uh, I take it you didn't mess with this mode either. Unfortunately, no, I did not. You have more experience with the modes of Vitra, Vitra than I do. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend giving this one a shot. It's, it's pretty hectic and it's a lot of fun. I... I quite enjoyed this. And since it's two and a half minutes and five lives, even even with as much as is going on in the game, you can pretty well be assured that unless you're playing like complete and total garbage, you're going to get through that, fi- uh, that two and a half minutes with uh, at least one life intact. And uh, you're going to feel pretty powerful mowing everything down with the boost and then flying all over the screen to grab all these crystals so you can kind of keep doing that. So it's a it's a fun little uh, gameplay loop. Sounds interesting. I'll give it a shot. One of the things that I noted when we looked at selecting this game and when I booted it up to play it the first time is that this game is very pretty. What do you what's your take on the graphics? Initially, I was a bit off, but because everything seemed very clean cut and everything was drawn really well, which it just seemed very, 
I don't know, maybe it's because the assets were initially made for phones and it was a mobile game. Things seemed a little bit off-putting, I would say. However, the art style sort of grew on me and by the end, after playing it for a little bit, it didn't bother me. But I, I think I'm very used to the pixel art aesthetic where this just was different. Yeah. I- Everything is very detailed, and the the thing that I find interesting is, of course, now as we are recording this, R-Type Final 2 has been out for a couple of weeks now, and so going in and comparing to that, you know, when I first played this game, I thought, oh, this almost looks a little too slick. Well, now, of course, playing R-Type Final 2, now part of me is thinking, this looks a little too slick in reference to that game, and by comparison, Veritra looks a bit less slick and perhaps a bit more appropriate? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of weird how that works, where, where you have that point of comparison. Yeah, it's definitely unique, and I could see where it might throw some people off. When you mention STGs in general, most people are going to go for the pixel art aesthetic. And it seems to be what all of the prevalent stuff is put upon, unless you're dealing with something like, let's say, uh, Death Smiles for Cave, where you've got more of a modern 3D look. And keep, even within Cave, uh, what's that one title that no one likes? Or I should say, not no one, but most people don't like. They consider Caves worse, not worth. In where it has a melee action you can do within there. Um, it came out for the PS1. Oh, you're not Cave. You're talking Psycho Soul Divide. Was it Psycho I'm thinking of instead? Yeah, Soul Divide? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it just seems to give... Um, it, that's one of the things that's very divisive because it, it's very... You know, almost feel like CG heavy in some ways. The graphics can be off-putting to people with that game. I... I uh, it's it's hard to do 3D in a shooter and make it look well. I, I that's why I'm giving as I'm playing stuff more and more. I'm giving praise to Gradius Five. They're more praise to you know for for what it is. R Type Delta. I mean, I, I really like R Type Delta. Is but it, it, it's hampered, of course, because of the PS One. But still, it, it does a good job with the hardware base on which it's on. But 3D and shooters in general, just I don't know it seems a bit off. But it's really hard to nail down that look. Yeah, I do think that overall, the art style fits and kind of helps sell the concept of the game even if in part things look a bit too slick or a bit too clean I think in general it works at least for me yeah never once did I find myself going this looks awful or did you know hey this it's just sort of like oh that's different in in it if it, it felt different I, I guess the closest Analogy I could come up with is if you suddenly woke up tomorrow and your steering wheel was on the different side of your car than what normally is, it's not going to keep you from driving your car. It's just going to take you a while to get used to. 
just you know, oh, that's weird. <laughs> weird. And then you get in your car and you start driving. And you're still driving the same. It's just on the opposite side. It's it, it's something that may keep people initially from the game, but it's not something that they should let them try. Definitely give this game a shot, even if you are a little bit uh, apprehensive about the graphics. Right. I will say I thought the boss designs were pretty cool. Yeah, and by and large on there, I mean, the uh, giant enemy scorpion slash crab was very, uh, <laughs> very standard design on there, but the, and so was the spider to an point, but, you know, it, it, they're stereotypes for a reason because they work so well in SDGs. And the stage three boss was a neat take, even if it was a little bit of a copy of and stage one boss from our type you can't sort of go wrong with that it's iconic right it's it instantly reminds you of H, the work of H.R. Giger and the uh, I'm sorry Geiger and the Aliens franchise you know it's got that very visual aesthetic that you you still don't see in games these days very few very few games have gone with the R type aesthetic and then with the stage four boss with the B it, it fits its stage very well it works. Uh, looks like it could be something that possibly would. I mean, I jokingly said uh, Dodonpachi too, but it, it could be something that was in, um, let's say, a DLC for uh, Futari hmm. um, or in Mushi. And the Stage Five boss fits in very well with what is in the boss fight with Veritra. It's this huge black dragon with bulging eyes coming out. At, at you in the boss fight and it that works or was probably the most visually striking of all the bosses at least to me and so i definitely have to give them props there for making everything stand out and yeah i i just think that the design choices for the graphics were just took a little bit of getting used to it's very well done and I think it's just more on my personal preference for the pixel art aesthetic was why it took just a little bit for me to warm up to the game. Sure. Well, and there's also a lot of elements in the design that are heavily inspired, if not outright ripped off <laughs> from other franchises. I mean, I see elements of Gradius. I see elements of R-Type. I see elements of the Darius series. There are certainly areas of the design and visual elements in the game that are are reminiscent of other shmups. And at yeah. this point, it's kind of hard to avoid that, but it it almost feels like some of the some of the design aesthetic was the the developers wearing their influences on their sleeve. Which is fine. I would have to say, with the exception of maybe the Stage 3 boss, nothing feels copy-pasted out there. And I, I think we can use the term homage for for this, because it, I didn't immediately go, hey, that's exactly like it was from our type. This game was not accused of ripping off sprites. They, they put in the work. E even if it borders a little close to the uh, <laughs> the source material, it varies enough that they could call it their own work. Yeah, that's a good way of good way of putting it. 
and I know we've talked about this before, but speaking of the sound, the, the sound, the orchestral score for this game, with the exception of stage five, really goes in well. Or I should say stages one, two, five, and uh, <laughs> four, five, and six there. That's really the orchestra. When you get to stage three, it becomes very uh, <laughs> electronic, which, right. which is neat because it, it lets you know that this you're not going through a fantasy here. This is more biological, and I, I think that was a nice touch. I, I have to say with stage five, stage five almost feels like a Final Fantasy exploring the world theme to me. That was the only part that was a little bit off-putting. I felt like I, I should you know, hear that sound. We're encountering some monsters here and getting ready to fight in just a moment. It, it didn't quite fit for what I thought Stage 5 going through a forest should be. But by and large, the soundtrack was exceptionally well done. And I would love to see, you know, you mentioned earlier metal or rock influence. I would love to see a metal or rock version of the soundtrack. That, that would be a nice G DLC or something that they could add in there. The explosions, which are always very noticeable, I'm looking at you, Steel Vampire, are <laughs> punchy and work well. And that's one of the things that I... You know, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but as I'm playing through Gunbird, I've noticed that it may just be the City Connection port. Man, the, this something's off with those explosions on there. They don't sound punchy at all when I'm playing on the steam port of Gunbird. Oh, it's really taking me out. Sure. Well, some of it may be the game's vintage, but yeah, I get what you're saying. It, it's nowhere near as bad as Steel Vampire, though, so... <laughs> not, not, not everything will blow out your speakers. Right. So, yeah, the, the, the shot sound was slight, and, and it wasn't something that you're going to hear... Uh, you know, pew, 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 and then all of a sudden, that's all you hear. It wasn't, it was very well balanced. And there, I'm certain you could think of some games where your shot sound sounds like a jackhammer. Right. Yeah. I, 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 and I, I think some of the, some of the sound effects, like your shot sounds, they're pretty understated, but I think that works for the game because it's, it's not like Steel Vampire, where it's not blowing out everything else. It's allowing the atmosphere, the music, and some of the other sounds to kind of carry the weight. Yes, and, and speaking of some of the sounds, we've got some neat enemy sounds, like the Scorpio boss stretching stinger. In the expert modes, you have to listen to that sound, as if you're busy dodging all of the other junk it's thrown on, all the popcorn. And you know just by that sound when it's going to strike. That, to me, is a hallmark of good game design. Or take the uh, helix laser effect from the mid-size enemies in stage in 4 and 5. Those are some other standouts. Right. Yeah, I, I love it when a game can successfully utilize sound cues to help kind of telegraph movement or let you know when there are certain actions happening Again, because, like you said, where you're busy dodging or you're busy, you know, routing here or there, it, those kinds of things help you to signal you, oh, I'm ready for this, or oh, now I need to do this, or oh, the boss is getting ready to do this. So then it sort of helps you to engage with the game on another level. I thought the, the score 
aside from uh, aside from stage three, was quite reminiscent of Radiant Silver Gun or Ikaruga uh, in that sort of bombastic orchestral approach. I can see that. I actually quite liked it overall. Now, of course, stage four is less bombast. It's a bit understated. It has this sort of... I don't know. I'm not even sure how to describe it, but I quite like stage four. Stage three is funky, but I like stage three a lot. And stage four, as I said earlier, really feels like it belongs in Final Fantasy as you're exploring the world. Oh. Like, to me, you know, it's... It seems a bit out of place, but I, I can understand where you saying it's a bit understated for what you're you're going through. And you said stage five, oh, stage three is uh, very upbeat. Yeah, it's definitely a departure from the rest of the soundtrack. And at first, it strikes as a bit odd, but it, I it ends up fitting really well with the way the stage is laid out. Yeah, there's a little bit of of kind of playful electronic stuff going on in there that reminded me just a little bit of one of the Zentata pieces from Darius Gaiden. Not a direct comparison, I would say, but it just sort of gave me a little bit of that vibe, which I kind of dug because that's a great soundtrack. Um, just real briefly on the scoring, the boost mechanic, which is the main thing in the game that's sort of the hook for gameplay is also what drives the scoring. So the main thing with the scoring is that you have a multiplier that you can you can drive up by using the boost laser or the boost weapon. When you do that, that increases your multiplier up by you know a, a certain amount depending on how many enemies you're taking out with it or you know how frequently you're using it. So it, there's kind of this push-pull effect that's going on because your multiplier, when you're not killing enemies, the multiplier sort of slowly ticks down uh, a tenth of a percent at a time. And so you, you constantly want to be taking out enemies. And in order to make that amount climb, you want to use the boost. You can get a little bit of a slow climb if you have a large group of enemies that's coming at you all at once, a ton of popcorn, for example, and you take them all out very quickly with your standard weapon, but you'll get way more of a multiplier bump by using the boost on those same enemies. So that's kind of the thing is to sort of learn where and when to time your boost laser usage to maximize the large groups of popcorn and things like that. I started using the boost early on just as a means of having a stronger attack to use on mid-sized enemies and bosses to sort of take them out quicker. But once I learned that, oh, you get a, you get a really big jump in your multiplier when you use boost on a, a large group of popcorn, well, that's when I started sort of prioritizing those situations so that I was using boost more so on standard enemies instead of the larger ones because that's where your your real score boost is going to come out. The interesting thing is that the multiplier rate goes up by a, a wide margin. I initially thought it capped out at 15 times. Then 
later in uh, like a, a day or two later, I was playing and I got my multiplier up over 30. And a couple of us were theorizing, well, maybe it caps out somewhere, you know, like a multiplier or a, a multiple of that, like a 64 or something like that. But I was watching a playthrough that someone did on expert difficulty. It was a, a no miss, one CC, and that playthrough ended up with a score of over 108 million points. And their max multiplier at the end of the game was something like 142.8. And so obviously that's not the ceiling. I don't know what the, what the multiplier ceiling is, but I would be interested to know if anyone has figured that out or if anyone has dug into this game enough to sort of reach peak multiplier, uh, because I would be very curious to know what that is. Because when I, when I was looking at some of the top runs in normal difficulty, uh, I think the top score was something over 60 million. So obviously there's, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot of more headroom particularly once you move up into the higher difficulties because there are more enemies and, uh, you know, more targets that you can take out. So I'll be real curious to see if anyone has figured out what the, what the game's actual max multiplier is. Did you engage with the scoring system much or were you mostly playing for survival? I was mostly playing for survival, but I, I think I maxed out at 25 when I was trying, but I didn't go push it any farther than that. And to be honest, with this game, I hate to use this term, so I'm going to say it once for fear of summoning Metal Jesus, but it appears to be a little bit uh, of a hidden gem. There, there, It's something that not a lot of people have seen or played, and when they give it a chance, they find it very interesting. So, they, But there's not something that you're going to see on STG Weekly, or it's not something that you're going to see in strategy wikis, SCG, or, or even a lot of stuff on the farm about it. I don't know if it, if that's because it, it, oh, it's mobile originally and people are dismissive, or if it's something that just doesn't have the recognition. I'm not sure. Yeah. The interesting thing when I was looking online is that there are several videos on YouTube highlighting Veritra Hexa, and showing off gameplay, there's a couple of 1cc runs through the different paths and stuff, but there were literally three videos on YouTube that I found that are 1cc runs of Veritra. One of them is mine, one of them is B.Reality's run from this last month, and then one of them is this expert mode run that I just mentioned. So, yeah, there's just not a lot out there about the game, and I'd say it's a bit of a shame, because I think it's, it's uh, without spoiling anything, I, I think it's worth a look. Yeah, I, I, without spoiling anything here, well, I would definitely agree. So, now that you give us a quick spoiler alert, would you like to tell us your impressions of the game? Yeah, I mean, overall, I think this is a... This is a pretty strong showing. Additional quality of life features notwithstanding, and obviously this having been built from a foundation of the existing mobile game, 
but they really took that concept and ran with it, and they fleshed it out into something that I think is visually appealing, is fun to listen to, is fun to play, and is well-designed enough that, you know, this tiny studio has really made a fairly slick professional product that is pretty impressive for what I'll call an initial effort in the genre and certainly one of the first games that they've ever developed. So I don't know if any of the team have worked on other shooting games before, but I would say if they hadn't, then this is a very strong initial showing and I would be curious to see what they're going to do next, uh, including the, the forthcoming title that I mentioned at the top of the show. Yeah, it, I don't get the feeling from this that this was a indie project. It, it, it definitely does not give off the vibe of something that... What was the uh, the trilogy that we did earlier? I'm trying to think with the... Raystorm? No, so oh, much Raystorm. Uh, the, t- the Tale of All X? Yes. That definitely gives us an indie vibe, which is fine. But it, it feels very polished and professional. It feels ready for, let's say, uh, Play Asia to do their their part, or for to be on the Switch on the eShop. It, sure. It, it, it's definitely could pass that title. There's some, as you mentioned, there are some things that could be added in there with quality of life, as we talked about earlier. But it. It doesn't have to be there in for order for this to be game. There are games on the eShop with much less. So, right. I would say that for most people, that they should definitely give it a shot. I think it's a breath of fresh air from your typical Damaku game. I love playing Damaku, and I love playing like our current one with Gunbird and. Strikers and you know all, all these Psycho games, but there's there's something about having your standard STG that can be quickly picked up and played that is very much comfort food for me. I I like being able to spend you know five minutes and feel like I got something out of it, and this game definitely hits a mark with that. I also like that they're not punishing you. The only thing I I wish was maybe a little bit more done was some of the weapon types end up becoming a lot more useful than others with with when you start playing on the higher difficulties. So I'm I'm not sure how well the balance comes into play there, but to its credit, each one of the weapon types feels distinct enough to stand on its own. So there's nothing where it goes like, oh, this is just a copy-paste of this other laser, or this is just a copy-paste of that. It's very well done, and I hope that this game gets some more recognition, or the recognition it deserves in the future, and more people give this a try. Yeah, and I think given that the that Neotro's next game is supposed to be coming out not only for PC, but also for consoles next year... I would say it would be cool if they could then backport some of the Hexa content or the Hexa mode, if you will, 
into the Steam version of this game or, you know, make it a separate release or something and then maybe do a console release of Veritra based on the Hexa port, but then adding in Mugen and Setsuna and kind of making that a definitive sort of final director's cut, if you will, version of the game that would be made available to a wider audience. Because I think there's enough of there's enough of an audience now, uh, particularly I think guys in our age group, you know, people who are a little bit older, grew up playing more of the traditional shmups, may not be as open to the Danmaku style, but would dig a game like this where they can kind of see the Gradius, R-Type, Darius-type roots and influences in the game, but still does enough of its own thing that it's going to stand out and give people something that will feel familiar, but also unique at the same time. And, you know, even with the way that, th that things are now, I mean, Steam, the audience is huge. But at the same time, I still feel like you reach a bigger audience on a console eShop than you do with anything that Steam can provide. I think that for the for this type of game too, the audience is going to be primarily on console. I, it, it would definitely be sad if this title were never to get out off of Steam. It's something that should be celebrated and ported over just like Crimson Clover was. I mean, look what happened with that. That game was $1.99 on Steam for decades and then they ported it over to Switch and all of a sudden now everyone's going, this game's amazing. Right. Uh, it's it's the poster child for this stuff and I think that they should give it a shot by porting over or, or even uh, looking at uh, look what it did for Devil Engine. People are talking about Devil Engine, you know, lawsuits and other fun stuff aside. <laughs> that game sold really well because it was on the eShop and people were able to get visibility and see it. And then the uh, Rolling Gunner, even though it's not quite as successful as um, Devil Engines or Crimson Clover, it still did pretty well and even got a physical release. So it's. Uh, if Ritra was to release on the eShop, PSN, etc., and then came out with like let's say a limited physical because there's only 55 companies doing physical game uh, <laughs> physical games these days. We could definitely see this game as taking off. Yeah, and and I think I would certainly be interested in giving this game another look beyond what's in the Steam version if. Like I said, if they if they came back out and and put in the hexa content so that it, you had the branching paths and and a little bit more of that replay value, you know what this game really reminds me of is it reminds me of like steel the redo for Steel Empire. Oh. The, the feel on the same line. I mean, it's not steampunk. It's uh, steampunk aesthetic. But the flow of the game is very similar, and I, it feels like there should have been a 16-bit version of this that ne never existed, and huh. this is the HD sequel. Does this sort of feel that way to you? That's an interesting observation. It that hadn't occurred to me, but I, I kind of, I think I kind of get what you're saying. 
Yeah, I mean, the graphical style is very similar to Steel Empire, at least with the HD report on there. And it plays pretty similar, too, right? Where you, you get two ways to control your speed and then with the airplane versus the blimp and the way that it's going. It's not quite old school, but it's not, you know, you haven't reached Damaku and it's in between. It's, but it's got a good flow. Yeah, it's. <laughs> it feels like there should be a 16-bit version of this that that came out on the Genesis or something that would that n- never did. Huh. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. I get those once in a while. <laughs> All right, now that we've given our thoughts on the on the game, let's go on to thoughts from the RF Gen community. Our first one comes to us from at B.Reality. Since I got on in the Shmup Club and so late in the month of April, I only had about four hours to spend with Verita. So I'll share some thoughts about the game. First off, I greatly enjoyed the look of the music of this game. It was not only very visually appealing to me and my chat who watched me stream the game, but we were all digging the tunes as well. Especially Stage 3's music, so funky. A lot of us felt like the Dragon Spirit vibes from the look. That's the other thing that we we should touch upon. But it really did mean some like a, a, a spiritual successor to Dragon Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's from the look, and it turns out that it had the same artist, and it was pretty cool to find out. There you go. Also, I guess this game was based on a lot of Hindu folklore, as far as Indra and Vitra go, and found it to be pretty interesting to read about. Most of my time was spent with the normal mode, which I was able to get a 1cc of, and set a high score of 9,680,330. I thought the enemy design and bosses were really cool, and the bosses were a fun challenge to fight against. And while a lot of the game wasn't too challenging on normal mode, there was definitely some frustratingly difficult sessions. Looking at you, Stage 4. I'm sure you can relate to that. Yep. Also, stage four, I have my favorite boss, the Hornet Killer Bee, looking boss. Really enjoyed this fight and found it to be very challenging, yet fair and fun. I definitely got a little bit of Euroshmup vibe from this game, although I don't say that in a bad way. Being able to take three hits per life was especially useful considering how big Indra's hitbox is. I originally thought the boss of stage five had an unavoidable attack when he rushes you and basically sits on you. But I found a very well-placed boost shot will get him off you. I will post my 1cc link below so people can see where it is. The weapon choices of the game were very hit or miss for me. From the Type A selections, I really liked the only Gradius-like weapon, which gave you the two options. The others felt very lackluster and only situationally useful. From Type B, I preferred the Emerald weapon that shot the rings out, and it worked fantastically for clearing the screen in front of you. I found towards the end of my playthrough, though, that the purple Type B weapon was also very strong. Wish I had more time to play that one. Yeah, that, that weapon feels a little bit OP, but it's almost a necessity when you play on the last two difficulty modes. I did briefly try out the hardest difficulty, which, as its name says, is quite hard. <laughs> the amount of revenge bullets on the screen, along with the normal bullets and size of Indra's hitbox, made it feel nigh impossible for me. I managed to make it through to stage 1, but that was about it. I also briefly played around with the Mugen and Setsuna modes, both of which had their own quirks and were fun in their own rights. Overall, I enjoyed the game, and 
I don't know I enjoyed it enough to come back to it, though, at least not anytime soon. I have to say, though, I was not a fan of the fact you can only fight the true last boss by playing the hardest difficulties. And I, I, that's something I could go back and forth on there. What are your takes on this one? Yeah. Ideally, I think it would have been better if they would have given you the ability to fight the TLB on arcade difficulty, not locking it down to expert. Because watching that expert run on YouTube, I could see that taking a lot of time to to actually be able to accomplish because of a much greater specificity of the routing and being able to deal with a lot more bullet spam on screen. Yeah, it's one interesting that we're how do you define what defines your second loop of the game there and or the TLB and I was thinking maybe scoring or something like that might be a better barrier. I'm not quite certain on how this that could be resolved. Right. He continues on to say, It would have been great to allow you to fight on lower difficulties if you made it there on one credit, like other games have done. That would also work. I did very much feel like a breath of fresh air, though, and a nice break from the other shmups I've been playing. I wish I had more time to put into this one this month, but coming halfway through the month, and my busy schedule didn't allow for it. I only really started to grasp the scoring mechanics after Metal Fro came into my stream and taught me how it works. But I'm happy ending this on 1cc and a half decent score. Well, thank you very much for those thoughts. There, yeah, as we talked about earlier with the TLB, 1cc or would be a good idea and you know no maybe a 1lc there's different ways you can do this versus just having it out there with with difficulty i am i can see where they're coming from when they want to get if you make sure that you really master the game versus just doing casual play but there's, there's just different ways of doing with this yeah and also i will say if you're on twitch you should go follow B.Reality because he has fun streams and um, he's definitely going to be engaging in the Shmup Club. He's already playing Gunbird and has streamed that some. So uh, definitely be checking him out. B.Reality on Twitch. So high scores. Uh, the only ones that we got were... Um, myself and B dot, uh, I ended up with the high score for the month because I was more specifically engaging in the scoring system. So I ended up with a run that was fifteen million five hundred ninety-two thousand six hundred ten points, which was not my one CC run. I actually scored lower on that. I'm not sure quite how that happened, but I, I must have just been on a hot streak with the ramping up the multiplier on that previous run so anyway uh and then b dots one cc run that nine million six hundred eighty thousand three hundred thirty three was what he got and that was both type b and that's one thing i forgot to mention before is when you actually look at the leaderboard um for mugen and setsuna uh modes it's actually broken out by each weapon type since you select your weapon at the beginning of the stage, and that's what you stick with throughout the whole run. And so that's actually broken down by category. But then for 
for your standard game, it's broken out by Type A and Type B for each of the difficulty levels. So I thought that was kind of a neat feature. So final thoughts. I definitely was surprised by this game and surprised in a good way. And I, I highly recommend that people give it a shot, especially when it goes on sale for Steam and hopefully it will get ported to consoles so more people can enjoy it. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. When I first started the game up early in the month, I thought, well, this is kind of easy. Maybe I'll be able to breeze right through this. Then I kind of hit the wall with stage four and had to grind a little bit to sort of get over that hump. But I felt like, I feel like a normal difficulty clear in the game is pretty doable for someone with a modicum of skill at shooting games and particularly someone who is into more old school games. Once you move into arcade difficulty and above, things start to get obviously harder and will require more practice, more diligent routing, and sort of figuring out how to approach the game, and particularly with weapon management and uh, learning the scoring mechanics since arcade and above difficulties have... Uh, the ability to earn extends, and so you definitely want to be engaging in the scoring system at some level to make sure that you're earning enough to get those lives. Um, but I, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this game and, and felt like it was a good pick to kind of contrast some of the other stuff that we've played recently and to contrast some of the older sort of classic shmups that are pixel art based and things like that that we've played that this sort of serves as an homage to while still having its own identity. In short, play it. Yeah. And speaking of playing, what are we playing next? Well, this month, uh, as we record this, we're in the middle of May, so we are already engaged with Gunbird, which was a an arcade shoot-em-up from Psycho, their second shooter and their third game overall. It got released on PlayStation 1 and Saturn in Japan. We got it here in North America as Mobile Light Force for reasons. And then it also got a PS2 port in Europe. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been more recently released through Zero Div and City Connection on the Switch and on PC through Steam. Yeah, it's an early Psycho game, and it doesn't mean that it's any less playable. It, it's but you you could definitely see the start of several things that would become hallmarks of their development process. Right, and a couple of things that are holdovers from some of the team members' earlier games, which uh, we can we can get into at that episode, uh, and then. Next month, uh, for June, we are going to finally be taking on our first uh, Game Boy title. And that Tetris. is going... <laughs> right. <laughs> Tetris is not a shmup. Uh, but no, we're going to be taking on Mercenary Force, which is a unique little shoot-em-up from uh, a company called Meldak that published that. 
They only published a handful of games in the early 90s, but this is one of them, and it's an interesting shooter that sees you taking command of, instead of a, a ship or a vehicle or craft of some kind, you're taking, you're taking control of a squad, essentially, of different characters from kind of feudal Japan perspective and going through and taking out enemies with this squad of people. And so it'll be a, a very different approach, but I think it's uh, an interesting game that will will uh, be an, uh, a fun discussion to have when we when we talk about that. Looking forward to it. All right, I'd like to give a couple of shout outs here before we close out. I'd like to thank Ed, aka Ed two hundred nine, from. <laughs> Studio Mudprints, Bullet Heaven for the logo, as well as the logo that we have on our shirt. So I'd like to thank Kogusu for the intro and outro music, everybody at RF Generation, and everyone at the RF Generation Playcast. I'd like to thank Metalfro for making interesting videos and always making sure to take time to give pets to his dogs who constantly interrupt him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they are, uh, the dogs are sometimes the, one of the things, one of the many things that keeps me from getting a 1cc. I can blame it on the dog, right? Yeah, I, I think that's legal in 48 out of 50 states. You should be all right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, all right. Any, anything else we need to, we need to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, I'm just going to say get it in now and make sure that you get your riding games ready because we are planning something big for the summer of next year. Oh, yes. The summer of riding. So be looking forward to that. All right, well, please thank be you. excited. Yes, please be excited. All right, well, thank you all so much for listening and we will catch you next month. Thank you.